Last week, we took some time to introduce this book of Revelation, and we also introduced the human pen that God used to write this, the Apostle John. And the first whole chapter is focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And I I do want to do a quick recap through the first three verses, and then we'll move on from there. Don't worry, it'll be much quicker than last week. Verse 1, Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. For the time is near. Back up to verse 1. This is the single revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not many revelations. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ that he gave John to show his servants. This book was recorded for your benefit if you are a servant of Christ. Things which must shortly take place. Shortly is the word takos in Greek, and this means that once these events start, they're going to move along very quickly. It's like a snowball effect. John is the man who Jesus chose to give his revelation to. John recorded what he saw, and as we'll see later in the first chapter, he sent it to the churches as he was instructed. Verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. John bore witness to Christ in his gospel and epistles. He even opened his first epistle talking about his actual experience with Christ in his physical body. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And now Jesus gives John this revelation of himself. And John now bears witness to this revelation, as well as bearing witness to the bodily um, incarnation of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. In Revelation, we have the only book of the Bible that points to itself and says, read me, I'm special. Revelation is the only book that gives readers a special promise, a special blessing. And this blessing is specific to those who read or hear and keep the things written in this book. You can just ask James if hearing the word is good enough. And we know that it's not. The hearing has to be coupled with doing or keeping. And you may be confused as to how you can keep the words of a prophetic book. We know that this is a prophetic book. And it may surprise you to find out that there is so much application to our lives especially in just the first three chapters 
of this book of Revelation. John writes, for the time is near. And one thing is certain, we are closer today to the rapture, to the return of Christ than we were yesterday. Um, I can say that with absolute certainty. And this is good reason for us to live with the imminence of Christ's return on the forefront of our minds. And we know that this is how the church operated since the beginning. They had this thought of Jesus' return constantly informing their decisions. Now we'll break into some new ground this morning. We touched on verse 4 last week, but we didn't get to uh, dive fully into it. So we'll start with verse 4, and I want to give you a quick outline of what we'll see proceeding through the first chapter. Verse 4 through 8 comprises a greeting from both John, the author, and Jesus Christ. Verse 9 through 18 shows the post-incarnate Christ, that is, Christ in his glorified body in heaven. And this is in relation to his church. He is judging his church. And here we get the picture of the great high priest in the Holy of Holies. Verse 19 gives us the division of contents in the book of Revelation. And this is given by direct instruction from Jesus to John. Verse 20 wraps up the first chapter, and verse 20 gives the interpretation of John seeing the seven stars and the seven lampstands. We are not going to get through the rest of chapter 1 this morning, but I'm hoping to get through verse 9. So with that outline, we will crack into verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. He starts off this verse, verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. And I want you to notice that John includes no title with his name. It's simply John. And it's likely that John would have been a well-known guy in this area in this time period. We know that around AD 70, he began pastoring the church at Ephesus. And he also had some sort of oversight over all the churches in that area as well. So he would have been a fairly common name. Um, He did not need to address himself as John the Apostle, John the Aged, um, anything of that nature, because they knew him. They knew who this guy was. He says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. The word grace is the common Greek greeting And peace was a popular Hebrew greeting, shalom. Peace flows from grace. Therefore, it is always grace, then peace. We never see peace come before grace. The book of Revelation simply reveals God's grace. John's greeting 
to the churches, wishes God's grace and his peace upon them as they read the things contained in this book. Revelation is sometimes known even among Christians to be a scary book. It's frightening, but we don't need to approach it with that mindset. John, in writing these things down, wishes grace and peace, peace, to the people he's writing to. He's giving them this message that is full of grace and peace. To the believer, this should not be a scary book. Uh, To the believer, this is glorious because we will be reunited with our Savior. We should have the grace of God on the forefront of our minds, and we can be assured that the peace of God will comfort our hearts as we read through this book. From him who is and who was and who is to come. This phrase emphasizes the immutability, the unchanging nature, and the eternity of God. He is presently, he was in the past, at the beginning, and he is to come. All things culminate in Jesus Christ. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, there's a lot of discussion between guys much smarter than myself as to what this actually means. And the most plausible answer that I've come across is this. The seven spirits who are before his throne refers to the seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself being one of the persons of the Holy Trinity. And another way to say this that might get the idea across better is that it's the seven ministries of the Holy Spirit. Um, It's not that he is divided in any way, but he carries out specific ministries. And this explanation also makes sense when we look at the context and the placement within our text this morning. The seven spirits are referenced right in between a reference to the Father, Him who is and who was and who is to come, and a reference to the Son in the next verse, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. Uh, This reference to the seven spirits is sandwiched in between those two, the Father and the Son. So that would also add some credence to this thought that the seven spirits is talking about the Holy Spirit himself. And it, it just wraps up and completes this reference to the Trinity. We know that grace and peace come from God alone. And this is what John is saying. He's saying grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Grace and peace flow from God alone. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. In verses 5 and 6, we will see seven titles of Jesus Christ laid out for us. We also see the works of Christ's present and future ministry. So we'll look at these titles of Christ first, and then we'll look 
uh, back at the present and future ministries of Christ. The first title that we come across in verse 5 is the faithful witness. John wrote about Christ as the witness in his first epistle. 1 John 5, 9 through 11 reads, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness to the world. The second title that we come across is the firstborn from the dead. The Greek for firstborn is a specific word. It's prototokos. Paul used this same phrase when he described Jesus to the Colossians. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. That comes from Colossians 1.18. You may recall in the Old Testament that Elijah and Elisha both raised people from the dead. Even in the New Testament, Jesus himself raised three people from the dead. You're thinking, well, how can you be the firstborn from the dead if all of these several people were risen from the dead before Jesus? The sense of the phrase firstborn from the dead is that Jesus was the first to rise from the dead, never to see death. Everyone who came before Christ was risen from the dead, yes, but then they saw a natural death afterwards. Jesus, being risen from the dead, did not see natural death after that. He was the firstborn from out of the dead. And that is the sense of what we're seeing here. The third title that we come across is the ruler over the kings of the earth. And this title is specifically referring to Jesus as he will reign during the millennium with ultimate authority. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. From Philippians 2, 9 through 11. There will be a time when Jesus rules over the kings of the earth. We know that God appoints the leaders, even today, and everything is under his control, but there will be a time when Jesus himself rules the kings of the earth. The fourth title to him who loved us. And the word translated loved in our New King James, which is what I'm reading from, is actually in the present active form of the Greek word. And this would read, to him who loves us, 
presently. This is another reason the book of Revelation should not frighten us. It comes from the one who loves us. He didn't just love us when he was on the cross. Of course, he did love us at that moment, but he also presently loves us at this very moment. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. I would assert, and this is my opinion, but I think that you'll find it's backed up fairly well supported, and I would challenge you to disprove this opinion. I would assert that the blood of Christ is the most valuable substance in the universe. And I think that is well-founded. The blood of Christ is the most valuable substance in the universe. If you do disagree, I would like to know why and what is more valuable than that. Because I cannot wrap my mind around anything that would be worth more. In Leviticus 17.11, God taught his people that the life of the flesh is in the blood. He then says, And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. You see, sin requires a blood sacrifice. And Jesus was both the high priest making the sacrifice and he was the lamb who was slain. He was both the man who made the sacrifice and he was the sacrifice himself. See, Jesus had the power to end all of that suffering in a moment. He chose to lay down his life. Uh, scripture says that he committed his spirit. He gave up his spirit willingly. Him who washed us from our sins in his own blood. He loved us and he washed us from our sins in his own blood. Number six, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Himself being our king and our great high priest. Some commentators say that this verse should read, made us a kingdom of priests. But that doesn't change the truth contained in this verse. Revelation 20 verse 6 reiterates that we will reign with him in his kingdom. Also, 2 Timothy 2.12 speaks of us as reigning with him. There are only three people in scripture that are called a king and a priest. The first that we see is Melchizedek the king of Salem, and the priest of God Most High. Melchizedek was the first in a new line of priests, separate from the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. Melchizedek was a king and a priest. And it was from this line of priests that the second king priest would come in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the King of Kings. He is also our great high priest. He rules and he offered himself as a sacrifice for us. It is by his sacrifice, his being a king and a priest, that we can then become kings and priests. Now, you see these three people in the scripture, kings and priests, Melchizedek, Christ, and you. If you are in Christ, he will make you a king and a priest. Interesting also that David of the Old Testament wanted to become a king and a priest. We know he was a king, and he wanted voraciously to build a temple to God. God wouldn't let him. He said, that is not for you to do. We know later Solomon would build that temple. But the Bible is not only instructive in what is there, it's also instructive in what's not there. We do not see David being a king priest, but only a king. And I'll let you ruminate on that this week. The seventh title of Christ in these couple of verses is found in verse 6. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen is actually a title for Christ. In Christ's address to the church of Laodicea that we'll see in a couple weeks, Jesus calls himself the Amen. That's Revelation 3.14. So Amen is actually the last title of Jesus in verse 6. God is called, what is translated in the New King James, God of truth in Isaiah 65.16. And although the NKJV renders the Hebrew word as truth, um, the Hebrew word is actually pronounced Amen. That is the word that's used in the original language. So God actually calls himself the God of Amen. Jesus called himself the Amen. Jesus is equating himself with God. Interestingly enough, and this is just free information for you this morning, no extra charge, the word Amen is almost universal across all languages. It was transliterated, which means that it was just the phonetics were taken from its Hebrew into several languages. And they kept the sound Amen and just spelled it their own way. Uh, So almost anywhere you go, the word Amen is understood. And, you know, I don't know what to make of that, but just free information. Verse 6 also marks the first of four doxologies in the book of Revelation. Each one includes additional ascriptions of praise to God. So we look at these climactic doxologies, and we see here in Revelation 1.6, it is ascribed glory and dominion. There are two ascriptions of praise. In Revelation 4.11, we find the next doxology, glory, honor, and power. We have three ascriptions of praise. In Revelation 5.13, we see blessing, honor, 
glory, and power. Four ascriptions of praise. And finally, the doxologies culminate in sevens, seven ascriptions of praise in Revelation 7.12. And this is signifying completeness. In Revelation 7.12, we see blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. Seven denotes completeness. In verses 5 and 6, as I mentioned just a second ago, the second sentence of verse 5 through verse 6 outline the present work of Christ. And if you look at that verse, it says, He loves us, washes us, and makes us to be kings and priests. That's what he's doing right now. Remember, loves and washes is actually in the present active tense. Now, if we look to verse 7, verse 7 looks to his future work. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds. This is in reference to his personal and physical coming after the tribulation period to set up his millennial kingdom. This event seems to be separate and to be distinct from the rapture of the church. Jesus said that he would gather his church like a thief in the night. And that description of the rapture doesn't make it sound like he'll be coming conspicuously in the clouds. Uh, with loud trumpets. But the description of the rapture seems distinct from the description of his second coming. The angels in Acts 1.11 said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. That is, in the clouds. And every eye will see him. Now, 30 years ago, this seemed like a far-fetched prophecy. You know, I don't know how it's even possible that every eye could see him all around the globe when he comes back. But you look around today and almost everyone has a device on their person right now that can record video and can send it out all over the world. And it's interesting that truly these things become more and more clear to us as the time approaches. And I'm sure that this event of Christ coming in the clouds with great glory will be all over social media, if that's still around when he comes. Um, But regardless of the medium, we now possess the technology that makes everyone in the world seeing Jesus seem like a cakewalk. Now, I don't know if Jesus will choose to use technology to fulfill this prophecy, um, or if he'll do it in some totally different way that nobody even sees coming. Um, I don't know, but truthfully, I have no problem believing 
that he can do it even without the technology of the cell phone. Um, I'm not saying that that has to be the case. But regardless, every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him. Now, who is this talking about? They who pierced him. Is it the Roman soldiers? I don't think so. I think that this is talking about the Jews. John is pulling a quote from Zechariah 12.10, where the Lord is speaking. He says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. This is the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's talking about the Jews. The Jews are the ones who handed Christ over to the Roman authorities. And then the Romans actually carried out the crucifixion. And it may interest you that the book of Revelation is riddled with quotes and references to the Old Testament. There are 404 verses in Revelation. 265 of those contain portions of 555 verses from the Old Testament. And here's a quick rundown. Don't try to write all of these down, but they'll be on the tapes. There are 27 references from verses in Exodus, 22 from Jeremiah, 43 from the Psalms, 79 from Isaiah, 43 from Ezekiel, 15 from Zechariah, 53 from Daniel. So, and Chuck Missler said this, I thought it was kind of funny, but if the book of Revelation looks strange to you, then we haven't spent enough time in the Old Testament. And that is a testament to just how much is wrapped up in Revelation. It is the end of all things. Everything that was started earlier in Scripture, Revelation finishes. In all, the 404 verses of Revelation contain over 800 allusions to the Old Testament. And that comes out to roughly two Old Testament allusions for every one verse in Revelation. That's remarkable. And some of these allusions are very plain, um, like this quote that we had from Zechariah. Others take some digging. So if you're bored out of your mind tonight, just go through the book of Revelation and try to find all of the Old Testament allusions. It'll be a great time. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now, back in Zechariah 12.10, the Lord continues to say, Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. But guys, this mourning is not for us. This is not for believers. We don't have to mourn at his coming. It's for the Jews who rejected Christ, who rejected his witness. When he comes in clouds and everyone sees him, every eye, 
those that have not accepted him as their personal Savior and Lord will certainly mourn. And the more accurate rendition would be beat their chest. If you are not on the right side of this event, you will be beating your chest, mourning. It won't be a glorious occasion for those on the opposite side of this. Even so, amen. Let it be. God is faithful, and this will happen. Even so, amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I can't imagine a greater claim to self-existent deity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. John 1.1, speaking of Jesus Christ being present in the beginning with God. And by him all things were made. His word called everything into existence. He spoke the heavens and the earth into existence, and he will be there at the end as the same God who created it in the beginning, who is and who was and who is to come. Now, it's interesting to me that John used the same, the same phrase to speak of the Father back in verse 4. And it's now being uttered by the Son. Jesus is now saying, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come. Again, equating himself with God. And he wraps up with the Almighty. The Greek word for the Almighty is pantokrator, meaning the one of all power. And I like that rendition of it. I like that definition. The one of all power. He is the Almighty. Verse 9, I, John. So again, John wrote this book of Revelation. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation, and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I, John, both your brother and companion. John identifies himself with those in the churches he is writing to. He's not promoting himself as, hey, I'm John the Apostle, and all y'all are B-apostles. He's identifying himself with those he's writing to. He puts himself on their level and says, really, in effect, we're all in this together. Your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom. This tribulation is not speaking of the tribulation period. 
is not saying that he will be with them during the tribulation period. And we know that this period is still yet to come. But John is speaking of the present sufferings that we all currently face. All Christians face persecutions from the world, the flesh, and the enemy. The Latin word, tribulum, is used for um, an implement that they would use to thresh the wheat. They would separate the wheat from the chaff by running this large slab of wood covered in teeth on the bottom over the grain. They would scrape it, and that would separate the wheat from the chaff. Tribulum, tribulation. These are the general persecutions that befall the church. And kingdom. This doesn't speak of the millennial kingdom that Christ is going to establish, but the current state of the kingdom. By virtue of the new birth, Christians are ushered into the body of Christ. And this is the kingdom in its current state. And that's what he's talking about, the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. We're all companions in the patience of Jesus Christ. We're all eagerly awaiting his return. And this patience means a cheerful or hopeful endurance. It means a constancy, and it also means a enduring patience. This is active, in other words. This is not a passive patience. Oh, I'm passively waiting for this guy to stop talking so I can get my lunch. This is an active bearing up under something. Enduring patience of Jesus Christ. We are eagerly awaiting his return. Was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Patmos was a prison island off the coast of Asia Minor, about 25 miles from the coast there, modern-day Turkey. And it was about 50 miles southwest of Ephesus, where John was pastoring at the time. It's about 13 square miles, so it's a fairly small island. And tradition tells us that John was exiled to Patmos for about 16 months. And during those 16 months, he was put to work. This 90-year-old man, 90-some-odd years old, put on this island in exile and forced to labor. Now, faithfully serving Christ for the vast majority of his life, this is how John is repaid. You know, and that's how I would look at it if I was in his situation. You know, God, I, I've served you so faithfully for so many years, and I end up here. Like, really? Is, is that all? But John, on the island that is called Patmos, is there for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. There's some question as to what the um, for means, really, for the word of God. Was John sent to Patmos because of his faithfulness to the word of God? Or was he sent to Patmos to receive 
the word of God for this revelation that he will be getting. And in fact, both meanings are absolutely true. Tradition has it that John was taken by Domitian after not bowing his knee to him. Uh, At this time, Domitian had instituted Caesar worship. There would not be a good time for whoever did not bow their knee to Domitian. So tradition has it that Domitian took John and attempted to boil him in a pot of oil. But when that did not kill him, Domitian said, all right, get out of here. I don't want to see you. He exiled him to this island of Patmos. Yes, he was there because of his faithful witness, because he did not worship Caesar. He was also there for a purpose. And God has this way of prescribed loneliness in our lives. He'll put us in places where we can be in a crowded room of people and we can feel so incredibly alone. Um, And this is for a purpose. In John's life, he was this guy, should be retiring, should have retired long ago from the ministry, from anything that he was really involved in, but God kept him around. God sent him to this island of Patmos to receive the most amazing, remarkable blessing that he would receive in his entire life. It was in this period of loneliness. So often, we can become so busy that God's word gets completely choked out of our lives. And we can't hardly think straight because all of these voices from the world are clouding us. They're too loud for us to handle. So God has anointed times of loneliness in our lives where everything calms down. We feel like we're alone. And truly, John was alone in this experience. But this can be exactly what we need to bring things back into perspective. We can quiet the bustle of the world and just focus on him and what he has to say to us. And it was at this exact point in John's life when he received from God the most remarkable revelation. Daniel, Ezekiel, and here John, it was in their exile that they wrote some of the most remarkable things of their lifetime. Moses, John the Baptist, and Paul, in their loneliness, received incredible divulgences from the Lord. Incredible revelations in their own right. When the Lord wanted to absolutely shut down the horizontal and let these guys and you focus on the vertical, he puts them in a place of loneliness. You may call it a desert experience. And if you are experiencing this time of exile I just want to encourage you to praise the Lord for that. 
because it is during this time that he can get into your life and start wrenching around on some stuff. It is time for him to work like you haven't seen before. And certainly that was the case for John. Now, this is a remarkable new revelation to the body of Christ, and it was entrusted to John. But you must be willing to hear. Don't shut him out and don't wallow around in your own self-pity. If you are in this desert experience, seek him in his word and seek him in prayer. And there are incredible things that he will bless you with. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We're going to wrap up our study this morning right there. Um, I would just encourage you this week to seek the Lord. Draw near to him and he will. That's a promise drawn near to you. So let's go to him in prayer this morning.